There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week, we are considering the heartwarming subject of maritime pets. So first up, if you have a maritime pet, a ship's cat or dog or frog or pigeon, do get in touch. I have a working cocker spaniel called Geronimo, who quivers with excitement and fear every time I take him on a boat. He's basically only happy in the water rather than on it and sees a boat trip as a form of evil torture in which he is denied the chance to swim. He's more like an otter than a spaniel, I think. Anyway, enough of my maritime pet. First things first, do please get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and send us photos of your maritime pets. Today I'm talking with Pat Sullivan, who runs the excellent Museum of Maritime Pets. The Museum of Maritime Pets, established in 2006, explores and interprets the role of domestic animals on sea voyages from ancient times to the present. It is the only museum of its kind in the world and celebrates the contributions of pets to war and peacetime maritime pursuits. One of the advantages that the Museum of Maritime Pets has had over other small museums during the pandemic is that it is virtual. It lives online. And we will be doing our best to help spread the word about projects like this. In fact, now is a good chance to give a shout out to my good friend Timmy Gambin from the University of Malta, who runs Underwater Malta, an astonishingly good virtual museum of the shipwrecks around the Maltese coast. And he will be featuring on a podcast. Podcast soon. Anyway, back to the Museum of Maritime Pets. The museum began in 2020 formulating plans for travelling exhibits, lectures and all sorts of other collaborative programmes with museums and libraries across America. COVID-19 soon halted those efforts, though I was particularly interested to read about the planned collaboration with the Maine Lighthouse Museum. The point here, of course, is that animals not only have a long association with ships and the sea, but also an association with lighthouses around the world. Not only as pack animals, which helped haul building materials to construct new lighthouses, but also as mascots and rescuers. 
Well, most lights are now automated. There are still several around the world which have keepers and their little mascots on duty year round. So I'm looking forward to that in the coming months. They also have a major initiative going on to digitise their visual archive, compiled from worldwide sources. Their images include very early black and white photos and sketches sent by collectors and researchers who have stumbled across them in the course of their own projects. That's the beauty, I think, of the history of maritime pets. It's the kind of subject that you come across whilst researching something else. So I'm sure that many of you active researchers out there will suddenly go, oh, I've got an example. Well, if you do, get in touch, share it, and we'll get it across to the Museum of Maritime Pets. Anyway, here is Pat to tell you more about her wonderful museum. Hi, Pat. It's lovely to speak to you. Hi, Sam. It's very nice to meet you, too, face to face. Tell me all about this wonderful Museum of Maritime Pets. Oh, you're so sweet. We started in 2006 kind of as a result of some worldwide exhibitions that had been going on. I think the first of which was at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich called Animals at Sea. And it also produced a book. Simultaneously with that exhibit, there was another one at the Imperial War Museum called Animals at War. And uh, one of the museums in Australia, I can't remember if it was the National Libraries of Australia or it doesn't really matter also had an exhibit about seafaring animals. And I happened to find these and I thought there's something going on here. So being a historian and a former museum administrator, I thought this would make a great museum. (laughs) And so as simple as that, I set up a website and almost immediately I, I emailed a few people to get information. And I started being inundated with photographs, stories. Some of them were from retired military, many of them from World War II, but also the Korean War and later. And some were sending me links to other archives and libraries. And then, you know, it just kept mushrooming. So in 2009, we actually incorporated and became a formal museum. And we're virtual. But we hope to have walls very soon because we've got a lot to exhibit. Have <laughs> you just been collecting things people have been sending into you? I can yes. see stuff piled up in the background. Actually. Well, it, it's a, it's all digitally piled. But oh. what you see in the background is our little bit of our library and some stuffed toys. We Most museums... Uh, of course, own and exhibit tangible objects. And our tangible objects are mostly digital, so you can't see them unless you you access them online or wherever. But we do have our little props, like if you can see Hatch, the Mary Rose dog. <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> Hello, and, Hatch. And next to him is Sinbad of the Coast Guard. Those He was a very famous World War II mascot. And so... Um, but most, like I say, most of our objects are digital. But we, we've we had, since the inception, we've had normal uh, museum programs, library readings, exhibits, exchange programs with other museums. One of our um, most, I would say, popular exhibits was one we borrowed from the what's called the Esquimalt CFB Museum in Canada. It's, it's combined force base which is their military services all combined, but their naval component did a wonderful exhibit called Creature Comforts. 
So that was one of our most popular exhibits. And there just seems to be around the world, particularly in tough times like what we're going through now, animals bring out the warm and fuzzy nature of people. Because I think we all want something nice to hold on to, to admire, to um, think about, kind of takes the edge off. Yeah, it does. And you can you can really understand how people had, um, you know, very close relationships with pets on ships. Oh, most uh, definitely. The, what are the, how, how long has this been going on for, do you think? Have you got in, any information on what's the, the, the oldest example? Do we, what, what have you come across? Well, we've come across, of course, much of it is hearsay, no written documentation. We know the Egyptians took their cats on their sailing barges and... Besides uh, doing pest control on land, the Egyptians also used their boat cats to hunt. So the the cats would flush out birds along the shore, which would then be shot. So they were working cats, so to speak. We also know that it was the Phoenicians who brought cats to Egypt. But the Phoenicians didn't leave any writing behind, darn it. <laughs> and we we also, or I've read that the Phoenicians also traveled with dogs and um, the national dog of Malta, which resembles the dogs with the pointed noses that you see in Egyptian tombs. Yep. Those are believed by the people in Malta to have been brought there originally by the Phoenicians. Wow, that's a great story. I've also heard uh, when I go to conferences, of course, people always come and tell me stories. I don't know if half of them are true, but I've been told that the Norse traveled with a type of dog that they call the Norwegian elk hound, but I don't think back then they were referred to as elk hounds. They're, They're a Spitz type dog. And then other people have told me the Polynesians traveled between the islands with dogs. I have no idea. I've never seen them in pictures, but I like to think that that may have been true. Yeah, it's interesting whether they were there um, as uh, as um, just accompaniment or whether they had a, a working a working aspect to it. Um, the Vikings were a very practical folk. I suspect that they had a uh, they had some kind of a working working aspect, which is really interesting. But you guys are interested in. Um, it's an appreciation of animals living or working on or near the water. Um, yes. So it's not necessarily just about um, about animals on ships. There's a more of a, of a land-based side to this as well, isn't there? Yes. Uh, one of my favorite animals uh, is the penguin because, as you know, well, penguins are on all the continents, but especially in Antarctica, they've been like the welcoming party to exploring ships And you can see, I mean, if you Google penguins in Antarctica, you can come up with videos. In fact, there was there's a famous incident that happened a few years ago. A Russian research ship became iced in. It actually trapped and uh, they had to be helicopter. The crew had to be helicoptered out. But the ice was in packs and, you know, mountains. There was no flat area where the helicopter could land. And there's a video that actually shows a huge crowd of penguins kind of tamping the snow down. (laughs) I mean, they did it on their own. Of course, they weren't commandeered, but they created a landing strip. So I think, uh, 
you and you often see pictures of penguins walking out or waddling out to greet the people getting off the exploring ships. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, the other friendly animal that was never on a boat, but dolphins, centuries old stories, pictures, going back to Greek times of dolphins on ceramics and different uh, pieces of pottery. But we know that they've always had a playful relationship with man. Yeah, um, an, an inspirational one. I mean, if you, it, it's, I remember reading some 18th century journals of uh, Germans who, who may never have actually seen the sea before, but they were sailing across to the United States in the 1770s to fight in the American War. Oh, how interesting. And they, they were um, astonished by the uh, the nature that they were seeing on on their journey, and it wasn't about pets. It was it was more about um, seeing the, the fish in the sea and seeing the birds in the sky. And they were kind of you know wrapped up with this this new love of the world that they were living in. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, in terms of of people having actual pets on board, I mean, the only stories I really know about this are from the Second World War. I think. Yeah. I'm not I'm not very knowledgeable. Um, have you come across stories from before then? Yes, well, you know, uh, Nathaniel, I mean, Matthew Flinders, explored the coasts of Australia, mapped Australia, made several circumnavigations in the late 1700s, very early 1800s. He actually had a cat who accompanied him on three of his ships. Um, Cat's name was Trim. So that's one of the earliest written documents. In fact, Trim, uh, Matthew Flinders was later uh, arrested on the island of Mauritius. And unfortunately, Trim didn't uh, stay with Matthew. Trim was spirited away and we don't know what happened to him exactly. But Flinders was so stricken by the loss of his cat that he wrote this memoir. So that was written, I think, in 1803, very early. Uh, there was a cat on one of Shackleton's expeditions who accompanied the ship's carpenter. So the cat kind of became an unofficial mascot uh, of the endurance. And of course, the cat and the sled dogs at the very end had to be sacrificed because of lack of food. So that's, that's an early 20th century. And there are also many, many stories starting with World War I, where I guess sailors kept journals and also started sketching animals on their ships. Oh, that's lovely. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of visual aspect to this yes, as well. Yes. In fact, there was a famous cat during World War I named Oscar, who I think was on a German ship. It got torpedoed. The cat ended up uh, swimming to a piece of flotsam and was picked up by a second ship. That ship was bombed and the cat was picked up a third time by the British. And he laid, he lived out his days uh, on land. But so that cat actually saw battle wow. <laughs> and he swam. So we've got, there are written accounts, there are visual accounts. Um, I suspect there are many photos from the Second World War, are there? Oh, there are hundreds of them, yes. And then unfortunately, after, in the early 50s, right after the World Wars, most of the services around the world uh, started not allowing pets on board because of the fear of disease or 
reasons really un, not too convincing as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I, I know merchant ships still have animals aboard. Sometimes there are stowaways that may get on at one port and get off at another port. But I think it's really important even nowadays with uh, internet and games and television, cards, people still would like to have an animal or two aboard. I really think so. Yeah, I, I think that I think that would be nice. I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people uh, out there on on yachts who make oh. their, make their homes on boats who have um, who have pets to be with them. Yes, and some of those people actually have blogs, uh, and we we follow some of those. There's one in uh, Northern Scotland. Well, actually, he he travels around the Scottish islands, but um, his name is Salty Sea Cat. Yeah. And he blogs, of course, nobody's traveling now, but uh, in the good old days, he would blog almost daily. And um, we've had an ambassador at sea who was a cat who lived and sailed in the Mediterranean up until recently. So, yes, yachtsmen uh, keep parrots, cats, dogs, occasionally monkeys and other smaller animals. Yeah. Well, and you you also mentioned horses. Was yes. that, was that, was that, tell me about horses at oh, sea. People don't think about horses, but they are one of the, I would say, the most important maritime animals. You're familiar with the Bayou Tapestry. It's one it's of very... the earliest visual images of horses sailing. And, of course, early explorers took their horses so they'd have transport when they landed in their new new world or new territory. But horses have also been used um, for rescue work. The Coast Guard, at least in this country, and I'm sure probably in others, would often uh, be used to haul out the rescue boats, which were very heavy. So the horses would kind of haul them out to a point in the water where the men could then get on board and, and sail off. And conversely, when the boats would come back to shore, the horses would be used to pull them in. And horses, of course, were used in wartime, and especially in the Asian theater during World War II. Hmm. You know, they were pack and transport animals, but they also had to swim across rivers. And um, horses were also used along the canals, towing the barges. They were also used on ferries, and they gave the name to horsepower. Because in the early 19th century, horses were, they were, were there were two, two forms of, of um, horsepower. The horses would basically be on a treadmill on board deck, and that would propel the ship or the boat, barge, whatever. So horses have been a huge part of maritime animal contributions. The um the biotapestry is it's it's wonderful. You you have all of these images of William's ships, don't you? And you can just make out the heads yes. of of his horses. So we we know he he brought horses across, but there's a problem there because horses are notoriously seasick and they take a while <laughs> to get their legs sorted out, don't they? Yes, and I know the Channel Crossing was probably rough, but I guess they made it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some belief I think that they used horse transports from the Mediterranean. That there was an existing technology in the Mediterranean. Um, talking off the top of my head here, but it's in the depths somewhere that um, so someone had already solved the problem of horses um, and horse transports, and that they they there was a, a you know like the World War Two landing craft that had the kind of the bows that yes. come down and all, all the troops charge off. And they had they designed something similar 
for horses in the Mediterranean around about the um, the early 11th century, so the 10 hundreds, and that technology passed through Europe. Um, and then William uh, William of Normandy used that to take the horses across the channel. I had no idea because, you know, those ships had the very high ends, like the, almost like Viking ships, but mm. they must have carved something into the bow. Yeah. The, the only other thing you can do is if you have a Viking style ship, which is what the Normans used, is you can you tilt it like that. So you wait until the tide goes out and then you can tilt, tilt, tilt it, which um, or you attach something to the top of the mast, pull it over. And oh. that allows your horse to <laughs> gently step on board without putting his enormous <laughs> battle hooves <laughs> through through the hull of your ship. That um, would make me I, seasick. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's one of the big mysteries of the um of the of the Norman conquest, and I'd love I'd love to uh, someone to do a bit more research about that. So oh, that's I... my request to listeners: please find out about eleventh century horse transport. Oh, <laughs> I bet you'll get a good response. That's that's that I had never. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the." F- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Never heard that before. That's This is what's so wonderful about this type of museum. You know, we're not locked in we're not prisoners within our walls we kind of the world is our oyster and it's just wonderful in this day and age of social media and and social you know platforms like zoom where would you find out this kind of information it might take you years and suddenly you'll probably get a thousand tweets this afternoon it's just we will I have to say for everyone listening if you if you know stories of uh, either in history or even in the present day of people with pets on their ships do please let us know and we'll pass them on to the museum of maritime pets um when we we exchange emails before we we we, we have this this meeting um i was interested primarily about cats and dogs i suppose just because um i came across examples of that when looking at my own family history because my grandfather was in the royal navy um, but you you were more inspired by these other animals, and I could see that from horses. What what other what other animals have you come across uh, on on board ship? Well, of course, birds. Uh, now parrots are often thought of because of the their beauty and because pirates made them very popular. But actually, Alexander the Great, it it's it's written 
I suppose it's true, uh, brought parrots back from India. And they became very popular even in Alexander's time. And then during Roman times, uh, the Romans were mad about parrots. So I don't know if they kept them on board ship, but the Romans did use chickens on ships as fortune tellers kind of to uh, determine whether a battle would be successful or not. It's kind of grisly because uh, if the chickens ate before a battle, it was deemed that the battle would be successful. If the chickens didn't eat, it was bad news and they were often tossed aboard. So it's <laughs> kind of sad, but um, the other thing is there are working birds such as cormorants and cormorants in some of the Asian countries are used to fish. And when they're young birds, they have bands put around their necks so they can catch fish, but they can't swallow them. Wow. And they are tethered to ships. And in fact, in Japan, it's, it's considered a, um, it's like a royal warrant. Certain families have the privilege of keeping these birds and they keep them for life. But it's not anybody who can just get a cormorant and stick it on his boat. It has to be um, mandated by the government. But they're also used in China and Korea, possibly some of the other Asian islands. So they are working birds that fish. Wow. I, I, I've heard that the Chinese had trained sea otters. Really? Otter, yes, to catch fish. But I've not heard the birds. I did sorry. not know that about sea otters because, you know, the, we think of sea otters here, at least in the States, uh, as just cute and cuddly little critters. And they're very important for the environment. They, they, keep, uh, they, they float in kelp and kelp keeps the waters healthy. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know they were trained to fish. That's, that's interesting. It's one of those things that survives in ancient Chinese sources from about the 13th century, and you can't quite tell if it's true or not. But it's so it's it's almost so implausible. I think that it has to be true. If you know what I mean, you had they had um, sort of special compartments built in the hulls of the ships for them. This is um, when they were doing their their huge huge global navigation. Unbelievable. So, do you think Zheng He may have had sea otters aboard? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he might well have done. I really? think he might well have done. And the other thing, working birds, the, the Vikings, of course, used birds for navigation, didn't they? They did. Ravens, which, of course, uh, feature in Norse mythology, are were often taken aboard. And, in fact, we, uh, there's a, a replica of a Viking ship called the Harald Hafriger. And it was it actually came here to Annapolis a couple of years ago. It's a beautiful ship. And on, on the uh, deck there are two carved ravens. So they were used as um, navigation because if the ravens flew off and came back, they knew that land was nearby. Because of course they were sailing, you know, without charts and instruments. So uh, yeah, ravens were navigational aids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, in terms of, of companions, uh, what are the, your sort of favorite stories of, of, of pets as companions on board? Oh, some of them are sad. Uh, I would say companions, uh, one of the best known ones who's had a very long shelf life is my friend here, Hatch of the Mary Rose. Of course, he was on the ship. It's believed he was the companion of the ship's carpenter. 
And when the ship sank, he was the only animal besides some rat skeletons uh, who was found aboard. So it's believed he was the companion, but also the ship's ratter. What I love about Hatch is that, uh, you know, the ship sank 400 years ago and clever Mary Rose staff have created this spokes dog for the museum and he, <laughs> he has a huge following but you know because he's an animal that has attracted a number of children and young people to become interested in history so mm. i i think it's great there's there's another um very famous cat from world war ii well actually between the wars abel seaman simon who was on a, a british ship in the yangtze and there was a, a incident where the ship was shelled. Many men were injured. The captain was killed. And Simon himself took some shrapnel. But his job was to nurse the men back to good health. And he's the first cat to have won the Dickin Medal. Oh. Um, but unfortunately, after the uh, the ship was, was uh, ordered back home, at that time, that was in the late 30s, early 40s, the cat had to be in quarantine. So although many of the crew visited him, he didn't live long enough to collect his medal. That was very sad. <laughs> uh, I could go on and on, but uh, what I what I love, and I'm getting back to fl Flinders, is to have this famous navigator and researcher take the time to write a little book about his favorite pet. It, it, the, the cat was not only uh, Flinders's best friend, but also the crew's best friend during what must have been pretty scary times. Yeah, yeah. And you can see how important, uh, you know, the, these animals were. Uh, talking about the wars is interesting. I've, I've certainly come across a couple of examples of cats or dogs being on a ship which has been captured or sunk and then uh, has then accompanied the crew to prisoner of war camps yes where um where their their lives are in danger because they um yes they they keep the um keep the the prisoners company but they they consume food as well and so that you have to keep these there's one wonderful one of it a japanese prison of war camp where they have to keep this dog hidden it's a secret dog and they manage to keep this dog safe from the guards now are you thinking of judy the famous uh springer spaniel yes i think i am and i yeah. think judy also won the dickon medal yeah. yeah yeah what's amazing to me is that uh during wartime that the dog wasn't just confiscated immediately i think it's incredible either she was hidden or maybe the japanese even took a, a liking to her and felt sorry for the men i think so um if, if there are any owners of springer spaniels out there then the, <laughs> the idea of hiding one is, <laughs> i i have a spaniel it's not a springer he's a, he's a working cocker but you you cannot hide them <laughs> no no and she and they're large i mean they, you can't just tuck them under your coat yeah, and springy, hence the name, <laughs> and bouncy and noisy and smelly. Um, yeah, but I, I do love the idea of them, you know, coming off the ships and going on to have to have uh, longer lives. So you've been collecting all this material. How long now for? How long has this, be, this well, project since, been going on since for? about 2009. Wow. Uh, so we just celebrated our 10th anniversary last year. This is our 11th. And um, as I mentioned, we are hoping to have walls someday. We've actually been invited to collaborate with a museum up in Maine on Penobscot Bay. 
which is a lighthouse museum. And they have a big building that's not totally used. So we might possibly have a home. That's uh, wonderful. In, I tell you what, I bet lighthouse keepers kept pets. Oh, most definitely. In fact, uh, there's a, a lady named Eleanor DeWeer who lives here in the States, who's written many books about lighthouse history. But she also wrote a book called The Keeper's Menagerie. So, yes, lighthouse keepers not only had mascots, but some of those dogs, well, they had cats, dogs, birds, etc. They also had fodder animals because some of them were in isolated areas where they had to keep their own food. But some pack animals were used to actually haul materials to the location where a lighthouse was being built. Hmm. But other uh, animals like Newfies and Labs did many rescues at lighthouses all around wow. the world, not just here. I've never, I, that's amazing. I mean, and Newfoundlands, particularly in their, their, their role as life-saving animals. Yes. Um, and there, there's a famous, uh, actually, he was a horse that belonged to a keeper on the east coast of England, early 19th century. The horse didn't have a name, but somehow the story of this man did a famous rescue with the horse going down the cliff from the lighthouse and the horse rescued something like nine people. Uh, poor nameless horse. So uh, it's, it's incredible. I think keepers, especially on isolated islands and steep remote locations, must really have needed animals for companionship. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about horses swimming as well, um, and and uh, you know how how many animals do swim? They're actually very at home in the maritime environment. Yes, and you know a lot of people say cats hate the water. The cats can, in fact, there is a something called the Asian fishing cat or Asian swimming cat. It's a breed of cat. I want one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> they have webbed feet. Oh, cool. They use their tails as rudders. They live along the shoreline in in some of the Asian countries, but they they swim they swim and they fish for their own meals. Hmm. So people who say cats don't swim, not true. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be going out to Asia. I think in the next few months, so I'm going to try and hunt down an Asian fishing cat. Oh well, you know, nice we, nice to take a photo. We have some in zoos here in the states. They're they're fairly rare, and I think they're considered endangered. Yeah. So you may have a home in a lighthouse, and and is that where you're going to put your your make your make yourself at home for this this virtual museum? That's what. Well, it will no longer be virtual. We'll actually yeah. have walls where we can put our library and have classes and lectures. Um, right now, or since since we founded, we really kind of take the show to the people. We go to locations where we're invited, but you know, it's you pack up the stuff and then you unpack it when you get home. It'll be nice to just have. Uh, our own digs, so to speak. Yeah, that, that's the plan. We hope, well, but you know, COVID has kind of changed everything for all of us. It has. Well, I wish you all the luck. Let's um just just tell everyone how they can find out about you. What's your website? Thank you. The website is museumofmaritimepets.org. We are on Facebook, although we don't use it too much. We prefer Twitter. Twitter is at maritime pets muse. So P E T S M U S. Brilliant. And um, we would love we love Twitter because that's where we get most of our information and pictures. 
Yep, it's great. Um, I urge everyone to just just um, get involved and find some stories and ping them over either either to us at Nautical History or to the wonderful Museum of Maritime Pets. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was a delight. Thanks, Sam. I do hope you enjoyed that. Let me urge you again to get in touch and see if we can raise up some stories of maritime pets old and new to share with the museum. Before we go, there are, as ever, some wonderful new contributions to our free forum. You can find that at snr.org.uk. Peter Atter writes... I am keen to locate any extant logs and other documents from the SS Southern Cross. Um, I will just add there that the Southern Cross is an ocean liner built in 1955 by Harland and Wolf and Belfast uh, for the UK-based Shaw, Savile and Albion line um, built for the Europe-Australian service. Peter goes on to write, I'm particularly interested in the maiden voyage, but later voyages would also be of interest. Here is some background to my request. As a youngster in 1955, I travelled on the maiden voyage of the Southern Cross from Southampton to Wellington. Now, uh, I've looked into this. This is some journey. So her sea trials end in January 55, and then she leaves on the 29th of March, leaves Southampton, and then goes to Trinidad, Curaçao, the Panama Canal, Tahiti, Fiji, and ends up in Wellington on the 2nd of May. That is some journey. Uh, Peter, you should get in touch and tell us more about that if you've got any recollections. Uh, Peter then goes on to write... I remember that when we arrived in New Zealand, we travelled down the west coast of Wellington. The land appeared to be deserted. I suspect that we had made landfall at Castle Point Light, which we classed as a landfall light. I'd like to see a log to confirm this. I have an interest in celestial navigation and would like to discover what methods were used on the Southern Cross. So do please uh, help him out there. Go to the forum and see if you can contribute. That's not the only contribution we have had from navigation enthusiasts recently which um, makes me wonder what a collective noun for navigation enthusiasts is if you've got any select any uh, suggestions do get in touch i think uh, a location of navigation enthusiasts would be would be my suggestion uh, we have another query from one of our most regular correspondents malcolm lewis hi malcolm and thanks for getting in touch he writes in regard to the recent podcast on the sinkings of the british ships during the falkland islands crisis malcolm writes Paul Brown's book featured uh, on the SNR podcast as an important record of the sad loss of six RN and RFA ships, as well as the Argentinian cruiser General Belgrano. It is a must-read book for the naval historian. Both the British government and its military were unprepared to respond to the Argentinian invasion of the Falkland Islands, the windswept rocks 8,000 miles away in the South Atlantic. Paul gives a harrowing description of life aboard a modern warship under constant attack from fast jets with bombs and missiles. The book is very well researched and includes information from government files only recently released. The unanswered question, I suppose, is would Argentina have carried out such an invasion if the UK had not withdrawn the ice patrol ship Endurance, which showed a lack of commitment to the Falkland Islanders and... Of the first signs of trouble, such as the landings at South Georgia, sent a nuclear submarine from its patrol area in the North Atlantic to the Southern Ocean. Well, do offer any answers and thoughts if you have any. That's it for now. Everything you can do to spread the word of the Mariner's Mirror podcast would be hugely appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter at Nautical History. The SNR is on Facebook. 
Um, the Mariner's Mirror pod itself is on Instagram and has its own YouTube page. If you haven't checked that out yet, really do please take the time to find the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube. It's got some really fabulous stuff there. We're trying to break the mould and bring you entirely innovative ways of visualising the maritime past, including an animation of a mask taken from Horatio Nelson while he was alive, and most recently a wonderful little animation of the excellent ship plan of the K-class submarines of the First World War, those ship plans from the collections of the Caird Library at the National Maritime Museum in London. Otherwise, please do join the Society. It's the best thing you can do to help. You can find us at snr.org.uk and the subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history around and to preserving our maritime past. <laughs>